Today we're going to begin a new sermon series. And the sermon series is called Abide, Abide, A-B-I-D-E. And basically the sermon series is focused on that key spiritual habit of abiding or that spiritual discipline, depending on your word preference. Um, To abide simply means to dwell or to live with or to remain Depending on your Bible translation, when you see the uh, John chapter 15, you'll see it will say, you know, dwell with me or remain with me or abide with me or various versions of that. Essentially, it just means to stay close to. Right. And so we're called in the scriptures to abide with Jesus, to remain close to Jesus, to stay in his love. Um, And the essence of abiding is remaining close to him, or as you've heard me say many times before, abiding is like marinating, right? And so the longer you marinate a steak, the more it tastes like the marinade. And it's the same idea with abiding. It's as we draw near, like it says in Hebrews, now that those dividing walls have been broken down, we can draw near. So therefore, draw near. As we draw near to God, we marinate in his presence he changes us he speaks to us he encourages us psalm 23 he leads us to still water he leads us to green pasture even as we go through the valley of the shadow of death he is with us this is the beauty of abiding but here's the thing we cannot begin a conversation about abiding or any spiritual discipline or habit for that matter, until we talk about identity. Because the spiritual disciplines or the spiritual habits without an understanding of identity, and when I say identity, I'm using that very generally. Who is God? Who am I? You know, who are we as his covenant family, also called the church? You know, why are we here? Until we understand those core identity concepts, Spiritual disciplines are just a religious checklist. And I'm sure that for most of you, if not all of us, at some point in time, you looked at the spiritual disciplines, you know, prayer, reading the word, fasting, and you thought, ain't nobody got time for that. I got me the bronchitis. I don't have time for this. All right. How many of you have heard that? Maybe not the bronchitis part, but how many of you have thought that at some point in time? You know, you say, I, this is just, I'm busy, I'm really preoccupied, you know, we got a lot of stuff to do, and this just feels like more religious work. And the reality is this, if you don't understand your identity, or maybe that's too um, direct, if you're forgetful about the identity that you do know, then all of those spiritual disciplines they will be interpreted as a religious checklist instead of a joy, okay? And so I know, listen, it's not my first, it's not my first rodeo. Um, you know, we've, I've been in ministry, believe it or not now, it's like going on almost two decades of being in ministry, over 10 years at Revolve. And I know how summers are. I don't know if you guys know this. I know that there's so many of you who were hoping the summer would be a time of spiritual rejuvenation and refreshment, and instead you jam-packed your schedules, and now you're crashing into the school year face first, right? And you're thinking to yourself, I was really hoping I was going to feel rejuvenated and refreshed going into September, 
but instead I feel like a train wreck. And so this whole series is geared towards us, people like us, to remind us of the freedom of these spiritual habits and that when these spiritual habits are coming from a place of identity, they're not oppressive, they're not burdensome, they're not chores, and they're not checklist. And so I'm specifically talking to those of you who have always struggled with the spiritual disciplines. You've always struggled with consistency in the word, consistency in prayer when someone else is enforcing you to do it, consistency in those spiritual habits. If that's you, I'm talking to you as my primary target, okay? Because what I want you to realize is that the main reason I believe that you struggle with that is because of a, a weak understanding of identity. A weak understanding of identity. You see, identity always leads to activity. Identity and activity are like two sides of the same coin. It's two parts of being a disciple. So hear me. If I have a rich understanding of who I am in God and who I am in Christ, who God is, but then I never act on it, we would call that hypocrisy or maybe even false faith. Maybe your understanding has never dropped from your head to your heart, okay? And if you never actually have this bridge between identity, understanding who God is, who I am, and then the implications of activity, then that alone can lead to dead orthodoxy. And that's where Christianity just kind of lives in theory, and it never actually changes who you are. And a good example of this are all of our Ivy League divinity schools, right? And, I, and I'm sure there's believers at some of those schools, but, you know, you don't go to Yale Divinity School so that you can get a really rich understanding of the gospel. And so the point is that's just the ivory tower academic Christianity. It also lives in some forms of what we would call fundamentalism without the fun, just inactive, dead fundamentalism. Now, the flip side of that is if you have activity, you're super busy for Jesus, right? You're at church six nights a week. Now, we don't have a church building to go to, but you're there waiting, right? If we sign up for something, you're there. You bring your kids to 15 VBSs over the course of the summer, and your schedule is jam-packed with religious stuff. And if that's you, but if you don't have a rich understanding of who God is, who you are in Christ, who the church is, and why you're here, you run the risk of essentially being a religious busybody. And what I mean by that is that you can run the risk of going through ritual and empty religion, and you might wind up being busy, but aimless, empty, and even void. And if we're honest, this is where the vast majority of the major world religions live. Muslims are busy for God, too. Buddhists are busy for their own religious view, right? Hindus are busy in the spiritual sense of the world, and so the idea is if you're just busy spiritually, but then you aren't growing in depth of understanding of your identity of God and man, then you're just basically being a disciple in churchianity. Are you guys hearing me so far? All right. So in reality, you can't have 
identity without activity. And healthy activity is born out of healthy identity. Activity is motivated by identity. It uh, perseveres because of identity. It is effective because of identity. And activity, likewise, deepens our understanding of identity as we see God move in us and through us and challenge us and change us. And so it's in unison that identity and activity function for our own growth and maturation. Now, in the, in the real world, and I, when I say the real world, not that you know, Christianity is in the real world, but in your day-to-day life, you understand that identity impacts activity. When you have a baby and you become a parent, that is a new temporary identity. And I say temporary identity because it can be taken away, right? If tragedy strikes, it can be taken away. But you do have this temporary identity where you have to change diapers. You don't change diapers forever, right? Hopefully, right? There's a temporary activity where you're preparing breakfast for your kids and and you're wiping tushies and all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't continue forever. So this temporary identity of being a new mom, a new dad, leads to temporary activities that are different for different identities and roles and responsibilities that you'll face over the course of your life. When we become a follower of Jesus, we become a new creation. God gives us these core new identities, unlike the identities you have as a husband, as a wife, as a parent. Those identities can all be stripped away. But unlike those identities, the identities you receive in Christ are eternal. You become a child of God, can't be taken away. You become a member of the family of God, the church, cannot be taken away. You become an ambassador of Christ, it cannot be taken away. You could be a, like a prodigal child, and you can be a deadbeat member of the family and a bad ambassador, but the identities cannot be stripped away because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so those identities are part of you. And so this whole thing that I want you to wrestle with today is the fact that as a As a new creation with new identities, God gives me these activities to do. And so before we start this series on abiding as a core habit or a core discipline for spiritual vitality, we want to look at some of those core identities, child, family, ambassador, in the scriptures, so that we can have a richer understanding And my hope is that by the end of today, we understand a little bit more why abiding is so crucial. And so we're going to look to Jesus for wisdom and those three identities. And the first identity is this beloved child. That's the first identity, beloved child. Now we see this uh, come into play in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. And I'm not going to read all these scriptures today. I'm going to kind of summarize them for the sake of time. But in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, what happens is that Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness, and the, the, the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice booms from the heaven, and the voice says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That that's what happens at that baptism. You are my beloved Son. Jesus is anointed for this role of the Christ, of the Messiah, and this voice speaks over him. And then if you look at Matthew 4 and Luke 4, which are parallel passages 
in what we call the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you look at those parallel passages, you see that Jesus is driven into the wilderness, or literally the quiet place. He's driven into the quiet place by the Holy Spirit, and immediately it says that um, the enemy, Satan, attacks him and tempts him. And if you look at how Satan attacks him, you know how it is. It's with satanic lightning bolts, right? And like a sword, and he's got like, someone tries to possess him, and he's got a, no, none of that stuff. None of that Hollywood stuff. This is what Satan does. He says, if you actually are the son of God, then that's how he begins his attacks. And so in other words, what did Jesus just hear? You're my beloved son. And what does Satan do immediately? If you actually are the son of God who's apparently beloved, then speak to that stone and have it turn into bread. And so immediately what happens is the enemy attacks the identity of Christ. You see, it's not Hollywood spiritual warfare. It is real-world biblical spiritual warfare to the root, right? He wants to get to the root. If I can destroy this key identity, I can undermine the entire process that will lead ultimately to the cross. And so he wants to attack that identity of the beloved son. Um, He wants to cause Jesus to doubt, but Jesus doesn't doubt. Praise the Lord. Jesus does not enter into sin. He succeeds in the garden where Adam and Eve failed. And this is what we see. Jesus owns this identity of the beloved son, and this identity of the beloved son gives him peace. It gives him perseverance. It gives him trust. It gives him calm in the midst of of an uncontrollable um, scenario and world. But it also leads to some very key activities. And we see these very clearly in John. Just a couple quotes. Jesus said, I do what the Father tells me to do. Well, why? Because he's my Father, and I'm his beloved Son, and I do what the Father tells me to do. He says, I only say what the Father tells me to say. So as the beloved son, he's spending time with his beloved father. He does what the father tells him to do. He says what the father tells him to say. And then as he's in the garden of Gethsemane, wrestling to the point of sweating his blood, he says this to the father, not my will, but yours be done. And as the author of Hebrews explains, he trusts his soul to the father, believing that he will be raised from the dead. And so he's trusting in the father's care and love. And so you have the identity, beloved son. And then you have the activities. I trust my father. I do what he tells me to do. I do what I see him doing. And I spend time with him. You know, we receive the same identity as followers of Jesus. As part of being a new creation, we receive the same identity. And we see this very clearly just to summarize in a verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, 1, which says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Not just that you're called a child of God, and so we are. I'm a child of God. 
that identity cannot be stripped away because it is entirely rooted in the love of the Father that he has for me. Now, just like the beloved son, as beloved children of God, as new creations reborn into a new spiritual family, that identity leads us to certain activities. And if you look at the New Testament, you realize that it's the same activities that were rooted in Christ's identity. We draw near to the Father to hear what he has to say and to spend time with him because we love him and he loves us. We obey his every word and every command because the Father loves us and wants what's best for us. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And we share what the Father tells us to say. And throughout this process of hearing, obeying, and sharing, even when it seems difficult, we trust and rest in the Father's love for us. Because after all, like it says in Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's the kind of father we have. And so with that kind of father who is mighty to save, who rejoices over me, he doesn't tolerate me. He rejoices over me. He quiets me with his love. He sings over me. From that place of confidence in who my father is, I know what I need to do because I know who I am. All right? And so the point is this. If you say to me, Bill, I just cannot seem to get motivated to spend any time with God. I want to. I can't seem to find the motivation. I would encourage you, maybe what you need is not to beat yourself up about all the ways you're dropping the ball. Maybe what you need is to spend more time reflecting on your identity as the beloved child of God. Because when you love someone and you know you're loved by them, you want to spend time with them, right? Identity number two, family of God, family of God. In Matthew 12, 48, we see this. They came looking for Jesus, right? And he was inside the house with some of his friends. And they say, hey, Jesus, come out here. Your mom's waiting for you. Your brothers are waiting for you. And Jesus replies in verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For everyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus redefined, I don't think maybe you do realize how offensive this is, but it's even, it's offensive in our culture. It's even more offensive in an Eastern culture where everything is about the family, right? And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Who is my sister? It's these disciples. And Peter's like, well, I don't feel like a mom, right? <laughs> That's what he said. He says, this is my family. This is my real family. That's my birth family, but that's my temporary family. This is my real family. And so Jesus defines this new identity. He feels more obligated to his new family than he does to his own flesh and blood, than to his own brothers, than to his own mother. 
who gave birth to him. He feels more obligated to his family, his new family of the disciples. We see in John 19, as Jesus is on the cross, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby. Isn't that, let me just pause there. Um, So many of these quotes are from John, right? John who wrote John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. Think about that. When it says the disciple who Jesus loved, do you think it's because Jesus loved John more than anybody else? No. I don't know, at least. It's because John knew who he was. John knew he was loved. John had his own identity as the beloved one of the Son of God, and so that's part of ingrained in, intertwined in his identity, and I think that's why he always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. He's not pointing at himself, like, look what happened to me, mom. He's pointing to John. Woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, behold your mother. And from that moment on, the disciple took her home. Why? Because that's this idea of being a family of God isn't just an idea. It's a reality. It's an identity that Mary is John's mother, right? And John is Mary's son. And James and Matthew are John's brothers. And the entire understanding of family changes. Listen, in our country, we've seen a breakdown of the nuclear family, and we know it's been catastrophic, right? We can all agree with that. I want to push on you guys in this, though. Your family is not just your kids. Look around. This is your family. And so when we say things like, it is your responsibility to disciple first and foremost your family, we would all agree with that, right? Behold your family. It's not just your own flesh and blood born to you. Behold your family. Who's responsible to disciple your family? Behold. We are responsible to disciple one another. Right. And so this is if we really and if we say, well, yeah, but that's just no, either this is true or it's not true. And if we don't think it's true, you know what we won't do? I won't actually love Mark and I won't actually encourage him and I won't actually encourage someone when they're sad and I won't actually pray for them because I got my life and my family and my thing. I can tell you right now, if that's your perspective, you don't really believe this is your family. Is that cut a little bit? It should. Because my point is this. We say we know these identities, but do we really believe them? Or do we just know them up here? The identity is family of God, covenantal family, the people of God, the called out ones. And you know what the primary attack is from the enemy against the family of God? It's disunity. We see this in 1 Corinthians. I just went through 1 Corinthians um, with some of the guys who we coach overseas. 
And we talked about this. The whole attack in 1 Corinthians is disunity, 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 disunity caused by personalities, disunities caused by unrepentant sin, disunities caused by um, tribalism, disunity caused by an abuse of spiritual gifts, disunity caused by sexual immorality, all kinds of sin that led to the same thing, division and disunity. That's how the enemy attacks the family of God. And Jesus' solution, we see it in John chapter 13, when Jesus serves them and loves them, and he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Even as I have loved you, love one another. Why? Because this is your family now. That's why in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we see, and many would go and sell a land. They'd sell a field, and they would give to the, put it at the apostles' feet and at the end of Acts chapter 3. Four. End of Acts chapter 4, so that they would, so that no one had any need and everyone was taken care of because that's what you do for who? Your family. That's why it says at the end of Galatians, do good to all men and especially the household or the family of God because they're your family. Jesus viewed the church, the covenantal reborn family of God as his true family and we receive this same identity as family of God throughout the New Testament we're not called disciples in the, in after the gospels we're called brother sister father mother it's all familial terms it's familial terms because the church is the family of God now what kind of actions correspond with a rich understanding of that identity well what would you do for your family you'd reconcile through problems you'd probably know their names i mean i would guess you know your family's names you know what they like you know what they don't like you express interest in their passions even if you think that thing is really weird right you show brotherly affection and care. You'd help when they were sick. You'd encourage them when they're scared or in need. You would renounce partiality or neglect. You wouldn't be like, I mean, I like that brother, but that guy's an idiot. You sit over there. No. You would love them and serve them just like Jesus did for us. Which, by the way, is why it's really hard to act as the family of God if your congregation is too big, isn't it? I mean, how do you do that with a 1,000 people? How do you do that with 130 people? It's hard. I don't know. If you figure it out, let me know. So we have these identities, child of God, family of God, and then this third identity, ambassador. John 8, 21 to 30. And Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. He's talking to the Pharisees. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said to him, will he kill himself? Because he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Jesus said to them, you are from below, and I am from above. You are from this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. And so they said to him, well, who are you? 
And Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning, I have so much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Now, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, he's talking about the crucifixion, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing. This is the ambassador piece. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me, ambassador, is with me, and he has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Identity. The identity here is ambassador. It's representative of the father. He comes from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of the world, which in John's writings, the kingdom of the world, the word world always refers to the kingdom of Satan. And so the, from the kingdom of God, he comes to the kingdom of, the, of Satan as an ambassador representing this heavenly kingdom in an evil empire. And the attack from the enemy is to deceive people so that they reject him and thereby the one he represents who is the father. But from this place of understanding that he was a sent one, he was a sent representative, it's not my authority, it's not my words, it's not my miracles, it's not mine, it's the Father's. Understanding he was sent as a representative, as an ambassador, as the visual image of the invisible God, as the exact imprint of his nature, as the periphery of his glory, right? Like it says in Hebrews, the outskirts of his glory. Jesus understood that identity, and then that led to certain activities. He proclaimed the good news of the father's kingdom to the enemy kingdom as an ambassador does. He communicated back to the father through prayer on behalf of the evil kingdom, asking the father for wisdom and for reinforcements and for resources. He healed the sick. He helped the hurting. He freed the captive. He died on a cross becoming sin so that they might become righteousness. And guess what? 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, how did the Father send him? As an ambassador, as a representative. As the Father sent me, so I send you. And so these same identities that Jesus has, beloved child, family member of God, ambassador, these same identities are shared by us because he is our spiritual father, the second Adam, Romans 5, starting a new creation, a spiritual creation, and our identity, our DNA, is the same as our spiritual head. And so our actions correspond with our identity. We proclaim the good news because 2 Corinthians says that we are ambassadors of Christ. We demonstrate Christ's love and power in action, in word and deed. Freely we have received, freely we pass on to others. Why? Because I know who I am. 
I know who I am. I know why I'm here. Why do we love one another? Because I know who I am. I know who Zach is. I know he's my brother. Because we know who we are, it tells us what to do. Why can I trust God? Because I know who I am. I'm the beloved child of God, and he's not going to leave me or forsake me, so I don't have to worry about this. Even if I die, I don't have to worry about this. What's the worst that can happen? I die? Okay. That's the worst that can happen. Then I'm going to go be with him forever. And so we have unshakable, irrefutable, irrevocable identities that mold everything about us. When we know who we are, then we know what to do and we know why we do it. But when we don't know what to do, it's because we're being forgetful of who we are. It doesn't mean you're stupid or ignorant. We're just forgetful, right? I mean, we're forgetful. David makes fun of me all the time. I'm so forgetful. It's, I think it's because I'm an external processor, so it's like unless I'm talking, I don't actually know what's going on. You know what I mean? And then as soon as I'm done talking, I'm like, what happened? What happened? What did I say? And David's like, this is what you just said. And I'm like, that was good. That was good. It's like my brain only works when I'm talking. See, when we get paralyzed into inactivity, when we get paralyzed by fear, when we struggle with feeling insecure, when we get paralysis and we just feel sidelined by a lack of perseverance or sin, it's often because we've forgotten who we are. And we see this in 2 Peter, which we're going to do after our Abide series, where he says if you're not growing in these things, it's because you forgot. You forgot that you were forgiven of your sins. And so we keep coming back to those identities. I'm a child of God. This is my family, and I'm an ambassador of God. And these identities cannot be taken away. And so here we're kind of pulling it all together now, okay, guys? How do we grow in our identities? How do we grow understanding them better? How do I get a better grasp of who I am in Christ, who my Father is, so that I can actually be equipped to live the life that he wants me to do? Well, in a word, it's abiding. It's abiding. And this is what I want you to realize. And if you scan that little QR code that's on your lyric sheet, you can go to the website and see this. If you have your identity and you have your activities, abiding is what bridges them. Abiding is the bridge between identity and activity. How did Jesus know who the Father was? How did Jesus know he was the beloved son of the Father? Because he heard his voice and he lived in response. In other words, Jesus was abiding close to the Father. He remained close to the Father. How did Jesus know he was the firstborn of a new family? Because he heard the voice of the Father and lived in response. In other words, he was abiding close to the Father. How did Jesus know that he was the Father's representative? How did he know he was supposed to die on a cross? How did he know who to heal versus not to heal? Because there were many mornings when he woke up and said, let's go on to the next town. And then two hours later, a dad would show up with his crippled kid. And guess what? Jesus was gone. So how did Jesus know what to do, when to do it, how to do it? Because he heard the voice of his father and he lived in response. In other words, he was abiding. Abiding is the key. All right? If you zoned out, zone back in. Without abiding in the word, without dwelling close to the Father by faith and by choice, 
you will not grow in your understanding of who God is and who you are, who the church is and why you're here. Without abiding in the word and dwelling close to the Father, you will not choose to act on the implications of your identity. Hear me now. This is, this is like, this is the rub, okay? I feel like I should drop the mic to get everybody's attention, okay? If we say, I understand who God is, and I understand who we are, and I am, but it's not turning into action, you're not abiding, you're studying, Okay? If you're growing in an understanding, but it doesn't turn into action, you're studying. You're not abiding. There's a difference between the two. And if you're busy for God, and you love doing this, and you love serving, and you love helping, and you love being busy with Christianity and religion, and that's you, but then you're insecure and you, you're always worried that maybe that person doesn't like me and maybe I'm not good enough and, and what am I doing wrong? And you feel shallow in your identity. It's because you aren't abiding. You're just being busy. There's a difference between being busy for God and abiding. And there's a difference between studying the word and abiding with Jesus. And abiding is the bridge that actually brings you from identity to action. And then recharges in identity so that you can go back. And you can go through that cycle of rest and work and rest and work. And what is the pendulum? It's abiding. Like I said, for many of you, it's been a summer of neglect. I'm not picking on you. I get it. But rather than feeling filled up, you feel worn out. Rather than feeling refreshed, you feel ragged. And rather than feeling close and intimate, you feel distant and disconnected. And that's why we want to begin this next season with a series on abiding as we lead up to the transition into Lower Cape May Regional because we know the enemy is going to attack during this time. And we need to be deeply connected to our identity so that we can be ready for the onslaught. And so I want to challenge you to turn away from the activities that have distracted you and to return to abiding, to get close to Jesus. Because that's where you're going to discover your identity. That's where you're going to be empowered by the Spirit to hear his voice and respond. And so over the next few weeks, this is what we're going to be looking at with this topic of abiding. Next week, we're going to look at all of the excuses and distractions that keep us from abiding. Then we're going to look at how we want to encounter the power of God by adoring his presence. We're going to look at the role that the word of God plays in abiding. We're going to look at a foundational understanding of fasting so we can find satisfaction in God instead of in food and drink. We're going to look at abiding as surrender, fasting my will so I can consume his. And then on the 25th of September, we're going to finish off with our first Sunday at Lower Cape May Regional as Mallory and David lead us in a prayer service. And so this is my challenge to you. In the coming, what I, whatever that is, six, seven weeks, we're going to challenge you to dedicate yourself 
to really committing to get back into or beginning a process of abiding. We're going to challenge you to enter into a practice of journaling. We're going to challenge you to worship the Lord and, and identify your idols. And we're even going to ask you to commit to a few weeks of fasting in September, whether that's a Daniel fast, we'll explain that, whether it's a social media fast, whether it's an ice cream fast, I don't really care. That's between you and the Lord, but begin praying about it now that God would help you to know what to do because it's a fast, not a diet, okay? And so you need to seek the Lord for wisdom. But your homework for this week is to prepare your heart to reflect upon this message and really begin praying through the questions that are on the lyric sheet, asking God to show you you know, do I really know who God is? Do I really know who I am? Do I really understand this idea of the church? Or is this just like a service I attend because I need a, a spiritual shot in the arm? But like, I don't really care about these people. Like, I got what I want. Do I really know why I'm here? I want you to ask God to give you some true introspection on those questions as we prepare for the series. All right, let me pray for us. Father, your word says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything. Help us to see in a merciful way just how desperate we are for you so that we wouldn't operate under the lie that we can do it on our own. Help us to toss aside religious busyness for true, still abiding. And help us toss aside mental athletics for true presence. Help us to grow. You know who we are. You know how we're wired. You know our strengths and our weaknesses. But you want to make us more like Jesus. I pray that we would help one another because where I'm strong, another is weak. And where they're strong, I am weak. So let us learn from another, one another as we engage in the decision to abide together. We thank you, Lord. We commit this next stretch of weeks to you. In your name, amen.